that I didn't like. Not to say that I'm a genius when it comes to this, but <laughs> I like how you your fighting position is. I'm not saying I'm a genius. <laughs> no, but I I say I'm the top point zero one percent of the. No, 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 no. It's it's you know when you think you know a subject mm-hmm. and you listen to somebody and they're like, hold they, on a sec. You think you know it, and you they blow your mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. So yeah, that that's what I mean. Welcome to Mistakes Happen. This is your co-host KR, and I'm with my fellow co-host Russ. How you doing, Russ? I am hot. It's hot in Calgary this week. Plus forty. <laughs> Let's talk Plus a little bit about the, the heat, though. So one of our guests is in the middle of a uh, global climactic event so <laughs> it's worth spending a second um talking about how you're doing are you are you guys safe are you, how is the city oh, well, coping with uh with the the heat dome i think it's a lot of lot of complaining um there's a unfortunately a couple people who've uh been uh have gone to hospital in terms of heat stroke and, and yeah and such uh, but for the most part, I think we're we're dealing, and uh, so those real uh, realizations of if this was what climate change is, you know, um, no longer the jokes of, you know, in the middle of winter, you know, climate change is real, or or, you know, it, it'd be nice to have a, like three or four degrees warmth, right? Because <laughs> we're not getting that. <laughs> we're totally not getting. Yeah, that. I think that's uh, slightly more than three or four degrees, more like thirty to forty degrees, which is the well, th- three yeah. three to four average global temperature, which people think it's going to be like, you know, instead of the 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 minus five, it's plus five type deal. But what right. we're finding is that it's you know, it's that ten twenty degree uh, difference in 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 storms and and or in heat different differentials, right? Those so things I- we're not used to. So I think we've got a we've got a uh, an inkling of a topic that could come out of this sidebar. For those listening, we are not going to be talking about the heat dump today. We're going to be talking about um, tomorrow, actually today, and for for uh, today is June thirtieth. So we're going to be talking about the significance of July first in Canada, uh, and Russ is going to walk us through that uh, uh, some background, some context before we jump into a conversation about what what Canada Day is and what what do we do with it? Um, but I think, Russ, I think we, we have a potential topic to mind in the future about climate change. And um, yeah, I think the heat dome and the, the, the broader conversation about warming of the, of the planet is on the, on the mind right now. So we shouldn't forget about it. We should come back to it in a couple of weeks and, and, and maybe explore that further. So with that, let, let, me, let me hand it back to you. And we, if you can kind of set the stage for us, paint a canvas, and, uh, and then allow, allow us to enter into the conversation. I'll hand it over to you. So I, I think Canada Day is it's about stories. And if I were to describe one story or one version of the Canadian story, it could be something like this. You know, uh, the British and French were fighting again. The British defeated the French at the Plains of Abraham and that's uh, what would be modern-day Quebec, 1760, and then Montreal in 1761. And France had a choice, right? They had a choice to sue for peace and to decide whether they wanted to keep what was a vast, undisciplined, uh, 
quote-unquote uncivilized version of Canada or some small Caribbean island that was, you know, economically significant, strategically important. And uh, they chose that small Caribbean island. Canada became a British territory. And so our story begins. It begins with angering our, our friends to the south. At the time, there were 13 colonies. Uh, through what was known as the Royal Proclamation and, and providing rights to just about everyone but them. So Aboriginal peoples uh, get uh, treaties and alliances. Um, they get certain rights in what was called the Ohio Territory at the point. Um, the uh, French Canadians, known as Canadiens, get the uh, right to three things, la loi, la langue, la religion, which in English would mean the law or the right to use French civil code, uh, the French language, as well as the French religion, so to practice be Roman Catholics. And of course, as I said, this upsets the 13 colonists, or 13, 13 colonies, and they're colonialists because they got nothing they perceive. They don't get to go west, they don't get to trade with indigenous populations, and so they revolt in this royal proclamation that I talk about becomes one of the intolerable acts. You know, if I talk about the story of Canada, then it leads to division and union. In 1791, mm. it starts with the uh, dividing of Quebec into Upper and Lower Canada. Um, the elites of those two colonies can't, don't allow for fairness, they don't allow for accountability, they don't allow for democratic impulses. And so we see revolt in 1870, uh, 1837, 1838, and the Act of Union, which puts us back together again into this dysfunctional jurisdiction known as the province of Canada. It's so dysfunctional, it goes from elections to elections, premier to premier. And so by 1864, when the the colonies of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, we're talking about a maritime union, the province of Canada and the Grand Coalition, men like McDonald, Cartier and Brown say, let's crash our wedding. They uh, decide that they're going to take control. They bring down money and alcohol and uh, basically get uh, the colony of Newfoundland from being an observer of this whole mess to being a participant. And in this, in 1864, the foundations of Canada are lied through the British North America Act, Quebec Conference of 1865, seals the deal, but you know, you know, if there's anything which most people don't know about Canadian history, it's, it's full of turmoil. <clears throat> Bre- uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia try to leave. Um, and if it wasn't for the British and their constant meddling, uh, they would have done so before the 1872 elections, second elections. And so because of the turmoil, PEI and Newfoundland don't even, the premiers don't even put this deal to the table. And so we have this this thing that happens on July 1st, 1867. So out of the five colonies that had this conversation, one is split in two and two others go their other way, only to come in later, as we know, in 1871 and and 1949. Um, And so for those who are alive in July 1st, 1867, Canada's born and nothing special happens. No. Ticker tape parade, nothing exciting, just a trade deal, which, you know, 
nobody recognizes importance until 1879 when candidate becomes a thing. But it's called Dominion Day at the time. It's only known by its present name in 1982 when the, uh, the federal legislature changes the name from Dominion Day to Canada Day. But if I tell this story, you'll notice it leaves out a whole bunch of people. It leaves out those who, are, uh, who have a, a history of Black Canadians or those who are, are leaving Black uh, uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. So, and this is both a, their story is both a story of, of shame and pride. It's a shameful story because most people don't realize that Canada had a history of slavery. If we include the 1763 proclamation, you have to include things after that. Now, there's a whole bunch no, of people. We should talk about also, that, but yes, we should talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. There's a whole bunch of, of those who are Black who come to Canada in 1776, some who, who are seeking freedom, some who are just you know staying with, with, with those who are, are their masters. But by 1790, courts in Lower Canada, so now what we probably, probably call Quebec and Nova Scotia, so we can be institution that these words come through. So that, that a lower Canadian court says that the slave could not be compelled to serve longer than he would and might leave his master at will. Mm. In Upper Canada, 1793, you have the first earliest anti slavery legislation in the Western world. So by 1833, when the British Empire gets rid of slavery, it pretty much in British North America is gone. Right. But that, that, that is sort of the, the end. But that's just one story that's not told. We can talk about the, what they call the Golden Triangle presently in BC, where you have Sikh uh, and, and Hindu uh, immigrants who build portions of BC or build the present economy of portions of BC. You have Chinese Canadians who are forced to pay a head tax, uh, risk their lives trying to build a railway for a Canada that doesn't appreciate their, them as people. You have Catholics, Italians, Poles, Irishmen, just to name a few, who are discriminated against by their faith, but they're not the only ones. You have the uh, issue of, of the Kemagata, Maru, mm-hmm. Which is a Japanese ship. So, if Japanese, <laughs> I don't, I, I have no Japanese. So, forgive my pronunciation, but it's a it's a Japanese ship which ferries people from British India to Canada, and most of these people are not allowed to even touch Canadian soil because they're Hindu, they're Sikh, they're different. We can talk right. about Jewish. There's more complexity to it than that, but that's that's a start. That's a start. That's a start. But hey, I, I'm trying to cut it short because there are Jewish refugees in 1939 who are trying to flee the Holocaust. They flee on a ship called the St. Louis, uh, the, the MS St. Louis. The ship is denied entry into Canada. Eventually, goes tries to do the States, tries to do Cuba. But eventually, it goes back to Europe. It finds a safe harbor. But sadly, 254 people who are on that ship perish in the Holocaust. And, and so, and that's even before we get to the Mennonite Canadians who were given the right to vote, taken away, and then re- re-enfranchised because of their unwillingness to 
to uh, or their their peaceful existence or peaceful their belief in peaceful coexistence. Mm-hmm. The women who had to fight for the right to vote, the LGBT community who had to fight for for pride, and that's that's just touching on so many. But it doesn't even touch on on our Aboriginal community, which I, I mean, you and I have talked about the last three or four four sessions. Um, these people suffer from the residential school uh, uh, policy, policy which starts back before Canada starts with the 1858 legislation um, supported and supported by the entire uh, 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 legislature of the, the province of Canada. Um, while the Attorney General was Sir John A. Macdonald who forwarded the legislation, it was reinforcing previous policy as we talked about earlier that goes back to the 1830s. But that's not all. We had 60 scoop, we have forced moves, we have some of the worst sanitary water conditions and health conditions in the country in which these people live. Mm-hmm. So Canada does have a marked and shameful past. And the question is in Canada in Canada has been recently, should we celebrate Canada Day tomorrow, July 1st? And, and so that's where we begin the conversation. So I, I throw it to you before I, I start giving my opinions because I've been talking quite a bit. So the question in front of us is, I think it's got two dimensions. Um, how do you, what does it mean to celebrate something? Um, that's one, one concept or one idea that we have explored a bit. Um, in the second episode, um, and and the specifics of Canada Day as a like, what is Canada Day? Right, what, what specifically about this nation state is worthy of celebrating in a moment when you have so much uh, public? Um, I don't know if trauma is the right word. I don't think everyone's feeling trauma in First Nations and Indigenous communities that are impacted by this, I'm sure, are experiencing, the individuals in those communities are experiencing a range of experiences, including uh, trauma, I would suppose. Um, I think there's a lot of shame within the broader Canadian population, I would imagine, and that's what I'm seeing in Twitter and, and conversations uh, on Facebook, uh, in the news, um, at least in my personal circles. There's a there's a there's a head down. There's a moment of uh, somber reflection, and it got me thinking about uh, sort of two personal anecdotes that I would wouldn't mind sharing, Russ, to kind of steer us in a certain direction. One is um, when the when the um, the first news uh, broke about the residential schools, I, I was at my parents' place, and I was sharing the news with them, and they were confused. Um, they genuinely did not know this part of Canada's history, and why would they? Uh, they didn't grow up in Canada. They came here as immigrants uh, much later in life. And so I had to explain the history of residential schools and um, you, you almost see the sort of natural graph of there's an initial shock and then there is a recognition of a pattern and they say, oh, I forgot this country was built in the same colonial space that the country I left came from. 
and then everything starts to settle into these sort of predictable dimensions of how they process their own history. They started to apply that lens here. And one thing my dad in particular said that, that um, really stuck with me, and he said, um, and, and he's quite keenly interested in um, the way Canada presents itself in the world, and sometimes he finds it quite performative and, and sincere. Um, and he said, you know, when you have the prime minister, it doesn't really matter which party and, and public figures um, and politicians going uh, outside of these boundaries, talking about human rights and going to China and, and really challenging them to do better in Tibet or, or admonishing them for the, the, what they're doing with, in, in uh, the Xinjiang province with the Uyghur people. Um, he says, that there, there seems to be a lack of humility about what country you represent and what that country's past um, has been. It's almost a um, historical blindness. Uh, he says, and that stuck with me. And I think that is part of what you're talking about is an inability to um, have the humility to know that you have a, a very a fragile um, and fruitful moment in the present where you have a lot to celebrate but it's not something that should be drowned in this sort of euphoric exceptionalism that has not been earned, right? Most, most civilizations have not earned that euphoric exceptionalism and Canada is no exception. And then one could argue, as you've put it, Canada has very little to be um, quote unquote, capital P proud of um, uh, from an exceptionalist narrative. There's, there's a lot to be proud of. I would say there's a lower P pride and I want to talk about the lower P pride and I want to distinguish between the capital P and the lower P. I think there's a version of pride that I have being in this country that's based on my own immigrant story. One where um, when we were living in the United States for close to 10 years and struggling through the immigration system there where we were fairly close to getting permanent status, uh, having landed there as workers, but our files were... Um, you know, for curious reasons, misplaced by the government after 9-11. And we were stuck in a bit of purgatory uh, where we could not leave the country. Um, and we were in these temporary work permits that would be, that would expire every year uh, with a lot of stress around when will we get the next permit. And, and my parents wanted to leave that uh, purgatory. And, and yes, we were middle-class, we were well-established. So we had options and so they decided to apply for residency in Canada and they decided to migrate there and I was an adult and I chose to do it with them. Uh, I had more choices. I could have gone to Australia, I could have gone to the UK, I could have gone to India um, and I thought you know I, I want to stay with my family and I chose to migrate to Canada with them and I would say having reflected on my experience being in Canada for the last, um, it's been now since 2008 so it's been you know, 13 years, which is a, which is longer than I lived in the United States. So now I can officially say, um, at least if you use time as a defining feature, I have I have more Canadian experience than American experience, if you want to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I, I I do feel like when you live in a world so dominated by American culture that you you're bound to continue to have a connection to America even if you don't want it. 
yeah, for sure. Um, and my wife happens to be an American citizen, and my kids get the benefit of that citizenship. So I, I'm, I continue to remain as American uh, and as Indian as I as I am Canadian. But but the Canadian dimension, I do have a a genuine appreciation for many things about the Canadian society that I did, that that when I reflect on what um, I experienced growing up in India and growing up in the United States, I, I have a genuine appreciation for the lightness of the society, the fact that the society offers a lot of space for immigrants to come and live uh, a version of an authentic life. Uh, it doesn't force assimilation upon um, many of the people who migrate here. You know, small things um, like seeing uh, the Tamil script on, uh, dis on display across the city of Toronto, um, other scripts, the Hindi script, the Urdu script, um, the fact that there is a, um, a, 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 a warmth to the people that I met and I, uh, when I was living in, in Western Canada in particular, um, and a simplicity, uh, you know, I think there's an insecurity within the Canadian population at large, if you, if I, if I maybe, if I maybe uh, allowed to stereotype a little bit, but there's also a, a simplicity because we are on the edge of human, uh, human civilization. We're not at the center. And so that affords some space to be simple. Um, and those are all things to be appreciative of, um, to, to try to preserve, to try to um, expand, um, there, but but I think they, they have to be done with a level of humility. And I think that's the, the H word is what I want to really maybe uh, offer up as a response. How do you celebrate Canada Day? I do think there's, a, there's many things worthy of celebrating that are personal to the individuals who live in this country. And it will not be universal. Things that I can bring to the table and say, I appreciate this part of living here. And things that maybe someone from a First Nations or Métis background will not be able to put on the table. And we need to allow space for those individuals who don't feel connected to the day to um, exit, right? To, to not force upon them a public celebration without humility, um, I think is, is part of the new chapter we can cultivate in, in celebrating Canada Day. But for many of us immigrants, I do think that we, we do appreciate this country in a particular kind of way with all of its limitations. Um, and we do think that there's something, you know, worth uh, genuinely spending some time reflecting on in a modest, humble, uh, deferential way to the people who don't feel that way at this time. So, so here's the funny thing. I, I, I scripted those words because I believe them. Um, I spent... I think my entire lifetime, um, I've been really lucky from grade nine onward, it deeply, deeply uh, entrenched in Canadian history in both its, its highs and its lows. And one of the books that I remember reading in university was it's a book called Fragile Freedom. And it's a listing of all the stuff we've done wrong hmm. right so you know um and and you know various components of of that so when I actually wrote the script I didn't have to I didn't really have to think about it it was just it's everything that I know in my head 
Um, there may be one or two things which I looked up uh, because, you know, you know me in accuracy. I like to, to make sure it's there. But this is, that is Canada for me. It is a bunch of highs and lows. And what, what I am always, so I, dis, I really strongly disagree with the humility aspect because one of the things that I look at Canada as not a perfect country, but as a country that, who acknowledges it's wrong in a way that is constant in our, in our lives. So I don't think it does, Russ. I would disagree with I, you. No, no, I, I, I really, no, this is, this is, this is one, one of the things where, I, where if you talk about, for example, it was China the other day who, who uh, the Chinese government who had said, you know, we were questioning the human rights situation in, in well, various human rights situations in, in China. And the, the Chinese government made the perfunctory and look at what you've done with your Aboriginal people. And they literally quoted from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, they and I think, I think that's exactly, I think, the hypocrisy of... Uh, there's, a, there's a performative aspect to our, our prime ministers, and there's an authenticity to it too, but there's also a performative aspect to our past prime ministers um, apologizing and continuing to apologize and seeking others to apologize. It's part of a reconciliation process that's internal to our polity. And it makes important sense for us to have avenues to, to, to heal collectively and to offer pathways of, of reconciliation for um, people impacted, communities impacted by, by past you know, decisions by, by governments and individuals. I, I get all that. But I don't think I, I see a whole bit of humility when uh, over the summer there are farmer protests happening in India. And there is a particular secretarian dimension to those protests where you clearly have um, a high concentration of Sikh farmers who are protesting a, a, a local bill. Um, and it's a complex piece of legislation because farm reform is, is a really important vehicle for improving um, um, agricultural productivity, dealing with a whole bunch of issues around uh, investment in the agricultural sector. These are, these are tough, complex choices that a, that a government has to make. And, and, and there, are, there are people on both sides that can, that can offer you a very nuanced take on what this legislation does well and what, does, what it does poorly. But that's not what was happening in India. What was happening in India was sort of this myopic debate, debate about how this piece of legislation is going to eviscerate and erase a particular community, which clearly it wasn't. That was not, that was nowhere near the intent of a piece of legislation in a, in a functioning democracy. It, it's, not, it's not capable of doing that type of damage. It, it, could, it could have some effect, but not nowhere near that effect. And so, so you did see a sort of a, a secretary and galvanization within the Sikh community globally, uh, because there's, there's a high degree of mistrust with, within non-Hindu communities, both within India and outside in the diaspora, with the, the more uh, muscular and uh, uh, nationalist uh, orientation of the current government there and being so well, openly and openly Hindu. Say, yeah, right? the it's, not, it's not the nationalist, it's, it's the religious nature of it, right? It's, 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 it's both religious and it's nationalist because previous governments have not have been very uh, tepid in their nationalism. Um, 
and they've been tepid in their because because they didn't have an animating vehicle to to talk about an exceptionalist narrative and and, and religion offers an animating vehicle to talk about a civilizational conversation right and that's that's really it, what this so so it's a multiplier effect you have you have a religion um, that has a has a um, a claim to past oppression that can then be um, utilized to have a conversation about resurrecting lost civilization right like it it makes it's an it, easy it, sell for a lot of people sell. i mean it's a it's a cell that was done in italy when they came together in 1867 it was the same thing that that's turkey's going through right now and, yes and turkey's a really good analogy for yeah, this right it's a lost yeah, civilization yeah. resurrected although resurrected under under islamic more islamic principles so i, I get it i get the principle yeah but, yeah i mean it, and, and i would and I, I get so bear I with me here. Bear with me here. Bear yeah. with me here. I'm about to make the point. I know. I know. I'm about to make the point. So, so you know, in classic fashion, you would expect our prime minister not not to put him on the on the on the ropes here. You'd expect your our prime minister and members of his party, and uh, members of the, the the NDP and other other kind of let's call it center center left politicians to 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 me have opinions yeah sure they have constituents locally they have a significant population within um within canada and they're quite mobilized on the, on the political arena and they're uh, they're likely um, demonstrating uh and uh, vocalizing their frustration about what's happening in india and so so they're picking up on the cues of the the, the electorate uh, that particular slice of the electorate and they're starting to talk about this issue and they're, they're talking about this issue in in ways that um you know are patronizing and and, and uh, you know that's where humility matters. Like one, um, the context of a uh, a nation that has a history of colonialism uh, as part of the colonial project, talking about the domestic affairs of one of the, the the largest democracy with a stronger constitutional tradition than Canada does, with strong protections under law that can get better, but they are strong. That's having a very vocal thrashing of a very complex issues issue locally. Um, to get to interject yourself and take a particular side saying you without even understanding what's happening um that seemed to be um a, a bit of exceptionalism to say that so, Canada will always be a defender of the oppressed seems seems a little shallow to say will really will it always has it always been so so that's kind of a sort of orientation of canada in the world that this government, previous governments, um, Canadians in general seem to think that they have a, um, a role to play in um, being the moral compass for the world. And I just don't see that as an appropriate role for a country with the, the kind of history that Canada has. And I, I, I'm reflecting on it within the context of what you talked about before and with, with Canada they're approaching. I think humility matters. I think humility, I think, I think what Germany does in the global stage is the kind of model I imagine is more centered and anchored in uh, a recognition that their past does not afford them any moral license to talk in these exceptionalist terms, right? I, I, so, so here's where I disagree. Here's where I, where I, where I strongly disagree with you. And it, it, I, the, the, you know me. I, I go back to historical example. That this is this is how I how I work. So, I think of both the two eyes which have so dominated political, our, our political compass in Canada, Israel and Ireland, okay? So in 
the Irish situation, Canada played a huge and actually an outsized role, right? Recognizing our own history of Protestant and Catholic strife, which actually links back into um, Ireland. And the, I, this is where I would talk about the Finians in 1864. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why Canada came together was because of um, the Irish, what the, they now describe as the Troubles, right? Yeah. Um, so so, so there, there's, there's that reality, right? And, and we, in, in a humble way, came to the stage and said, how can we help? And they said, we need someone to help with demobilization. We gave up a general, John de Shefflin, who chaired that, that, that process because we were respected for recognizing our history, recognizing where we were. When we talk about sort of the conversation around Israel and Palestine, we had, and we still have trouble in Canada having this discussion because we have everyone at that, who's at that table. We have Israelis, we have Palestinians, we have Christians, we have uh, uh, yeah, we have significant Muslims. population. We 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 have everyone at that table, right? So we could literally have that. We literally have that conversation whenever there's a blow up in the Middle East. Right, and sometimes it doesn't mean that we have proclaimed to, to having. Uh, I, I don't think that we have earned, uh, or we. Or I don't think any country um, should enter the space. I mean, Norway is the, the classic example, right? They keep being brought in as mediators and global conflicts because, heck, who hates Norway? Um, and, and maybe well, we, no. we see ourselves as Norway, but I, I would say but, Norway has a cleaner history than we do. <laughs> no, it no, it doesn't. You, so th this is this is why I find it 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 troubling when people talk about about past of the countries. Norway has a very aggressive muscular past, but its muscular past just doesn't include uh, trying to it subjugate. It doesn't um, include settler places in Africa. Yeah. They try yeah. to subjugate. They try to subjugate the the um, like if you look at Norway, Sweden. Uh, uh, and Russia and, and areas around the, and Denmark. Like there's a whole set of wars that happened between 1600 and, and 18, 1850 in that neighborhood. Right? Yeah, but, but Russell, so, if you want to go down that path and, and reflecting on your initial introductory comments where you talked about, uh, you, you, you applied an oppressor-oppressed uh, framing to a lot of the, the, the let's say, the history, historiographies that are missing. But then we can expand that canvas and say, well, what about uh, the practice of slavery within uh, and, and, and uh, sort of um, parallel versions of, of serfdom uh, and other kind of bonded labor within indigenous communities in Canada that, that, that had its own horrors? What, what about the high degree of tribal warfare between indigenous populations and other bro broader tribal populations across the world that results in a very high death toll and, and uh, massive uh, and consequential uh, violations of human rights, human dignity. We're talking about large-scale rape, large-scale uh, torture that occurs when you, when you don't have settled populations with, um, uh, settled populations have different codes and norms, uh, typically, 
right? They have their own complex hierarchies that is that get established, uh, different forms of um, uh, subjugation and oppression. But uh, to say that that we we are ashamed of a particular version of oppression, but but uh, but we are not going to talk about all aspects of oppression. Once you start expanding the canvas, you, you, I kind of get to get to your what you're saying, but but that becomes a bit of a um, you know a descendant absurdium. Like, where do we anchor well, ourselves? Do we do we anchor ourselves in just the good, or do we anchor ourselves in just the bad, or do we refine, look at history as just what it is? It's just the past. Well, I I don't think so. So for me, the past is what we learn from, right? You, you don't just I learn from history to know the things that I don't want to do, the things I fight for in my community, the, 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 the values that I have, right? So for me, I, 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 I anchor myself in, in the past because that's a, these are things, these are known things which are either bad or good. I can make a value judgment on them because I can learn about them, right? And, you know, uh, speaking you, to a friend of mine for can you make a value judgment on everything from the past or is it, is it too complicated? Is it too great? It's, it, I was going to say yes and no. <laughs> it, it is gray, right? I, I, as I said, I've anchored, I've, I've talked about the Canadian past from in a very deep way from grade nine. And in fact, in fact more than that, because I, you know, I studied Canadian history in French. Right. I, I, I started in, in French immersion in grade five. And so between five and eight, you know, I learned and, and understood the history that that is taught in Quebec. Right. Um, that's taught in, in Franco-Ontarian and Franco-Manitoban homes. And so it took me a while to understand and to, to sort of rectify the English version versus the French version of the same history that we have in our country, right? And, and when I, it took me a long time to understand when French Canadians talk about, you know, Canada being of two founding nations, they're really talking about the period between 1763 and, and 1866, right? Where you have the Act of Union, where you have the Royal Proclamation, where, where they see Canada as being formed in this really important area. If you speak to Aboriginal people, they talk about all of us being treaty people, right? And, and, and understanding the treaties as being equal, if not more important than the constitution, because it defines the relationship between us and the land and the law. So the longer that I've listened to people's stories about the country that I live in, the more confused I've become, but the more clear-eyed I've also uh, also become, right? So I understand it's complicated and that at least in the Canadian project is as much about clarifying what has happened as it is about walking together into the future. And so when I, when I talk about places like uh, like the Middle East, the issues in, in Lebanon or Ireland, the issues in Turkey, you know, the issues in, in Armenia, where the, the present Turkish government doesn't want to recognize 
the genocide of Armenian people because it reflects badly on their founders. Where here, what we're saying is, whoa, let's, let's have that realistic and strong conversation about our founders. Let's recognize that they're, um, they're far from perfect, um, that they made decisions which we now regret, which we now are appalled by, and that while we're not going to erase their names that we've learned from their mistake and want I, to proceed in a way, I, in a I different know, way. Every time I hear this version of Canadian patriotism, I just reflexively say, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, two, there's a few things that go through my mind. One is this, the stakes are extremely low for uh, Canada in the last um, hundred years relative to the rest of the world. We are an isolated place. Um, once once this, this, this territory was, it was extremely difficult um, to forge a nation out of, out of uh, a space that never really operated as a nation state and a vast, vast, vast nation. That is a, uh, the 1800s, 1700s, the 1600s, different period. But once you enter the 1900s, we're talking about a place that is very isolated from the, the, the intense complexity and competition that occurs in the various theaters uh, of, of uh, the rest of the world, right? From Latin America really? to really? Europe. No, no. Really? Russell, if you're talking about forging a nation state in the 1900s coming out of the, uh, the collapse of the Ottoman oh. Empire, the, the, the sheer chaos that that unleashes with different actors trying to determine how best to create ethnostates and, and religious ethnostates and the role of the caliph. Like this history is extremely complex. Let's take Turkey as an example, right? Like the, the, what happens in Turkey ripples across all of Central Asia, um, India. Um, it sets the stage for what happens in Israel and Palestine. It, it, it is not that simple. We are relatively isolated. We're relatively stable. We have some accidents of geography that benefit us. We have some accidents of co co colonialism that benefit us relatively in the 1900s. It's, there's nothing wrong with saying that because it's true. I, no, no, no. no. It, it, it's not that it's, it's, it's wrong. It, it's that I think you, you really are, are, are not really appreciation, appreciating the, the, the competition that the world goes through between basically 1600 across to, to the 1940s. Like there's a serious, like I, I can look at South America as an example, right? If, if that was true, if what you're saying is true, then South America would be a very different place than it is today. South America right? has dynamics that Canada does not have. What, what dynamics? It is far more populated. It had far more resource competition issues. It, it, uh, it, it's a different space. It's much more strategically important and significant within the context of global trade. Oh, um, it, but it wasn't. Like, like Canada is a, a very small place on the edge of civilization, Russell. Come on now. It no, 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 no. It, 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 it's, it's, it's as small as... So, so when, you, when I look at Canada... You know, if you want to say a very small uh, population, 
okay, I can, I can maybe grant you that. But the reality is that when you compare Canada to a South Africa, um, which is, you know, on the tip of civilization, which, which, you know, had uh, but it's, but it's a, much it, of the it's same strategic trading port. It, it isn't really on the edge of civilization. If you needed to get to Europe from Asia, you didn't have any choice before the Suez Canal, but to travel across the, the rim of Africa. And so, so it is extremely important. It's at the heart of 80% of humanity and how they interacted with each other. We're not in that space, right? The but Americas it, have always been isolated. But, but no, no. So South Africa, is, I think, presents, and South Africa presents the, the exact example we're talking about because the reality is that few people, few countries had the capacity before like the 1940s, not 1940s, that's unfair. So let's... Um, Iron ships, right? So, nineteen hundreds, right? To actually go across the, the the Horn of Africa, so even without the Suez Canal, right? So South Africa at the time was seen as being at the the tip of of the world, which had no realistic trading opportunities. The the trading that happened between Africa was was a slave trade. It was Africa, the Caribbean, yeah, or sorry, Africa, or the, Africa, Africa, Africa to England to the Caribbean to the Caribbean, right? Where where slaves came uh, to to the Caribbean or were taken to the Caribbean, right? And and there's no real opportunity for South Africa to expand any more than it was for Canada. And yet we find ourselves in two different places. Yeah, I don't, I don't think South Africa is a good example because because I think it was less connected to the old world, let's call it. Let's use a classical term that is <laughs> favor. Fair uh, enough. But, but let's not forget that its neighbor, Madagascar, had, had a, a period of Malay um, imperialism, for lack of a better word, right? It was part of, uh, it had a settler experience from Southeast Asia, as far as mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. The worlds, were, the, the worlds in, in the old world collided culturally, um, technologically, uh, through trade in much more material ways than, than the new world. And the, because the Atlantic does represent a clear chasm, it, it is not easy to breach, right? You had some, some African, West African um, um, uh, kingdoms that did trade, uh, you know, uh, did make their way all the way to the Caribbean. Um, and 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 Central America, uh, well, well, just the Caribbean actually, uh, but but that was uh, that was you know not a significant feature. It was more of a curiosity expedition type of deal. Um, you had you know your your Vikings, and and we have settlements. Was, we have remnants of those those um, expeditions in Newfoundland. Um, you had the Russians and their um, uh, their settlements on the western uh, coast of. Of Canada and, and uh, the U.S., Alaska, that, that sort of zone. So you, you've had some some amount of combination of uh, settled population uh, uh, interactions between the old world and the and the new world. Let's call it. But for the most part, we're a very isolated geography that could that can be relatively stable. While there's a there was there was a limited threat to the homeland, um, if you want to use that term, during World War One and World War Two, relative to what was happening chaos that was happening in Central Asia, in, um, in North Africa, in, in, in Europe, 
um, and and then in the World War II, it just en- en- enveloped, you know, S- South Asia, all of the colonies. Like it's it's not the same experience as we have experienced, and, and we 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 benefited from our relative distance where we could have just. You have countries that didn't have, New Zealand is a better example. New Zealand has the same distance. They are removed from the theaters of war in the major kind of battles of the 1900s. And so they don't really get um, caught up in any of the impacts of those wars, right? So I I don't know, even Australia credit for any of that. So so Australia, so so New Zealand, and so what, what, what time frame are you talking about? Because when we talk about, for example, you know, the, because I, 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 I steep myself in, in Canadian history. So, so maybe this might be the perspective that I come from. But the War of 1812 that Napoleon is fighting is as clearly linked to Canada and the reasons why we end up going, why, why, why the British end up fighting a two, three front war with the Americans, like the Americans and the no, French no, and, and what have you. I see so, those connections. So, I see that. So, I see. Yeah. So, so there, there's a there's a period. If you want to make the argument that there's a period between, let's say, 1914, um, through to, you know, 1950, where the wars don't happen to be close to Canada. Well, not really. We know that the the Japanese were. Uh, we know that Canadian soldiers fight are fighting in Hong Kong. We know that, uh, that. It's not the same, though, Russell. Come on, you cannot conflate those sort of um, those interactions with the consequential stuff that's happening with the end of colonization in the vast majority of the old uh, old world. The, the the boundaries that are being drawn up after World War One to carve up the Ottoman Empire into dysfunctional nation states. The continual well. Car- Recarving of Africa that occurs. Let's let's let's. That, let's, that stuff is that stuff I is mean, not happening in the in the, our more recent history. Like we but, we are not shaped by all of those experiences. These like not, a country like Turkey. Nineteen nineteen. Let's if you want to go back to nineteen nineteen, right? They don't just carve up uh, the 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 winners of that war, which Canada actually is at the negotiating table for for part of for a very good part of that, right? They don't just carve up the Ottoman Empire. They carve up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yes. They carve up um, parts of Russia that were captured by Germany, and they and they 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 carve up the German Empire. So so it's not just it's 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 that there's a whole area there for 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 between 19, 1914 and nineteen forty five that yeah it beca- it creates a whole dysfunction in Europe in which was only resolved when Yugoslavia gets blown up in 1993 and, and uh, uh, Czechoslovakia uh, breaks itself up too and, and the rest of the Soviet Union. So, right. so but, I, but what I, I, what I mean is like, I think there is a, I, I don't think we know, I mean, I don't think there's a sufficient empirical evidence and maybe that's what I'm trying, the argument I'm making is, I'm not sure if there's mm. empirical evidence to suggest that there is something fundamentally um, within the water, within the air, within the cultural milieu of Canada that um, sets it apart from our, our fellow human brethren in other parts of the world 
I, that's where my humility comes in is to say, listen, I, I can make that same case. If I wish, if I was to make a case for an exceptional country and culture, I think the case is far stronger for India. I think, I think the, the India would win every round of every competition on this because of the sheer, sheer baggage it has to get through uh, to keep 1.4 billion people um, together under one roof with 300 languages, with every religion under the sun, with the, one of the most repressive hierarchies ever invented. Like, I don't even think uh, if you put some scientists in a room and say, come up with something that can truly barbarize your a population, they would have come up with a caste system in its, in its most modern manifestation. Like it's got all of it, right? Uh, yet it's not splintering through daily rebellion in every state, which in theory, if you, if you put this powder keg together, you should be seeing uh, a failed state of historical proportions, right? But, but, uh, but, but it's not you, failing. It's not failing. But, it's actually a remarkably stable democracy. It's actually it's, something that has reasonably strong institutions. Um, and, and the fact that these institutions are strong is it, it, on display because you have a nationalist movement that is not able, that, that, is, that is unable to diminish institutions sufficiently to hijack the, the, the organs of power, right? It actually is still working. So, but then, I, but then when I start going down that path, I realize there's something incidental about India that it's hard to pinpoint. So that I need I, there, there you need to still relent on humility because what that ends up doing is fostering a sense of exceptionalism by default, and I, I worry about that exceptionalism by default creeping into I, the conversation in any country. I, I think I think the the exceptionalism. So I think the the, the argument of exceptionalism, right, is, is always a problematic argument. I don't I don't argue that Canada's exceptional. What I argue is that. Canada has recognized where it is, right? So the, the, the argument that you're using for India is that India has seen um, this growth in this nationalist Hindu uh, movement, right? It's not just a government, it's outside of that. It's, it's, it's a, a movement. It's always bring, been there. It's, to say that it's new is is is, is not oh, sorry sorry it's yeah, not it's new it's, sorry 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 that, that that's unfair you're right to the growth of it it the 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 its ability to cling to power to, to get power yeah now, it's right? the ability to to uh, translate it into political gains is what's yeah, happened right that's what's so, been so different but that that type of it is it has been it's unhealthy right I, so, I don't I don't think I don't think so I, I, I think this is where I, I well, well, this, we have to we have to meet peoples and civilizations where they are. I think if you look at I mean, this is where I'll offer you an alternative view of the, the national struggle from the lens of caste. Right, the the the, the India's got two um, India's got two independence movements that are happening in parallel. One is let's call it the white collar movement. These are the people you read about in the international textbooks. Uh, people like Gandhi and Nehru and Jinnah. You know, people who are British educated, uh, for for all purposes, uh, citizens of, of of London, living overseas, right? That's really what they are. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they they are 
they're fashioned for our modern history books because they can speak eloquently and they can uh, they they don't they don't engage in nefarious activities and then you've got revolutionaries and there's india's got a a militant um uh, armed resistance that that existed for the same 150 years uh with really remarkable uh intellectuals who were who were, you know, whose prime objective was to, they, they concluded that the best way to take down the, the British regime was to hijack the, uh, the armed forces and cause a mutiny. And they, they were successful at causing multiple mutinies. Uh, they were close to ending colonialism under some accounts of history, having partnered with the Germans during World War I. And was it, had it not been for uh, their plot uh, potentially being foiled by, of all uh, people, American agents who discovered what they titled the Hindu-German conspiracy and put all of the uh, the various uh, members involved in the Hindu-German conspiracy on trial, the longest trial in American history at the time in San Francisco. 100, and 100 plus uh, Indian men uh, were put in trial with, <laughs> with a witness who had turned state uh, from that group who was shot in the courtroom, this is like the most salacious trial of century no one knows about. Uh, the, the witness was shot by one of the uh, uh, one of the conspirators because he had turned state uh, in front of everybody in the courtroom in the courthouse. Like insane only, stuff, right? Only only in the states, only in the states. But but this is these are Indians killing Indians in the states. So let's 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 these are not these are not Americans, right? Let's not. And by the way, this Hindu. The, the revolutionaries were spread across the West Coast, uh, including in Canada. And that's what connects back to the, the ship that gets turned away. There is a real suspicion about um, the revolutionaries from India being, uh, having, uh, let's, call, let's call it, um, uh, infiltrated the Indo-Canadian community in Vancouver and in the other coastal cities of, uh, mm -hmm. of British Columbia that influences the way uh, Canadian officials are, are starting to view the Indian Indo-Canadian population there, and and uh, with concerns about you know essentially harboring um, what that that time would be called terrorists, right? Not not freedom fighters, terrorists. So so you got oh, a very yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough because they're but, against but, the British it, Empire. Well, fair that's enough. right. And by this revolutionary band is what spawns a number of really interesting thinkers, uh, many of whom are at the heart of the Hindu nationalist movement. Uh, and one of them, um, you, you know, a, a number of them are, are, are making the case that a, a much more Jewish case for Hindu nationalism, saying part of what we need is to dismantle the caste system because the caste system is what allowed for the, the, the British to colonize a people 100 their, their size, that were 100 times their size. The internal divisions of the caste system enabled to fester did not allow us to rise collectively and claim uh, our, our sort of uh, autonomy. So they were very invested in the project of dismantling caste for the purpose of creating a common Hindu polity. And we also need to understand that this is coming from a time when Turkey has been ethnically cleansed. The, the, the ethno state of Turkey is created by forced my uh, uh, forced population transfers with Greece mm -hmm. and other neighboring states. So that that idea of ethno-nationalism is alive in the air. And that idea gets picked up by the Muslim League, 
within India and becomes the, the sort of uh, uh, one of the contributing factors to why Pakistan gets created as a nation. Because before then, really, the Muslim League and, uh, was one part of the broader white collar um, yep, yep. Uh, re- resistance. And, and then it splinters off and says, I want a Muslim state, which, which there was no Muslim polity of that kind in Indian, uh, Indian history, but they wanted a Muslim state and that, that results in the fissure of India. So if you think about those complex factors and say, well, where does the Hindu nationalist movement come from? It comes from a desire to dismantle caste to create a common Hindu polity and a, and a response to- I, 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 get, I get that. A Muslim country. I don't think this is problematic. I think it's actually an authentic expression well, of the history of the country. Now, I, I think it can get problematic when it becomes a vehicle for caste lynching, which sometimes it does. And but, it, but, it becomes and, problematic and, but then, for secretary and violence, which many times it does. It, but and this that's is the point that, that India, India has, you know, after, after the partition, right? Um, before the partition, after partition, you know, because of that, because of that, um, that rise of, of Islamic, of Muslim fear, for that greater Hindi state or Hindu state, you start to see things which didn't happen beforehand. And that, that becomes my concern, right? And I can point this in, in, in Ireland. I can point this in India. I can point this in Israel. I can point this back here in Canadian history that the moment that that, that larger um, religious, uh, nationalistic, that combination gets get started, it leads down a bad path. And this is why for me, when, when I talk about Canada today, when I talk about Canadian history, when I talk about where we're trying to get to, I recog- it, it's a recognition of that we haven't gotten it right, but we've tried and we've acknowledged where we are and I can say that you're that, looking for for acknowledgement, though I don't quite get that. No, it's not acknowledgement. It's a recognition of of what Canada is right now, right? That if, I can buy you, into. If you want to say that, I'm not trying to buy into like let's celebrate today. There's a lot to celebrate about Canada today. Uh, there's a lot of lot to appreciate about Canada today. Um, that that I can buy into. But that that's my point, right? That there's there's that Canada, that that this this recognition, this seeking of reconciliation, right, is it, a path that we, I, I, I've and I've argued this in the past with many people who are who are friends of mine in uh, in these turbulent areas, that that Canada should not ever walk into a situation saying um, we've we get it right, but we walk into a situation where we say because we've gotten it wrong and we are willing to recognize our mistakes, this is what we suggest, right? This is what makes works given our experience. And this is how we believe because we've made the mistakes, we want, don't want you to do the same thing. We don't want you to walk down. Yeah, the same path that's, that we that's, the, that's the, that's the bridge too far to me. I think, I think there's, mm. I think, I don't think that we know why we work. I think most countries who work assume they know why they work. And I just don't think there's enough empirical evidence to really suggest we know really at the root of why we work. Uh, some of it is is sort of, there's a magic to it. 
And we happen to have a bit of that magic at this moment. And that magic could be lost at any moment. Let's be honest. Human history is very unforgiving. Places that it could were, be. It could you know, be. And, 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 and thriving, uh, you know, in the grander arc of history can become places of chaos and confusion and, and disaster very quickly. But, so I, I, I tend to view history from a, let's cherish what, if you, if you take a zoom out and look at the broader history of humans and think about where you live within that longer arc of history, you live in a time when there is much greater prosperity than ever existed within our species history. And you mm -hmm. live in a place that offers you an opportunity to live it offers the as men the, a, a larger section of society than ever before an opportunity to live uh, with dignity, right? And 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 that that is something that's fragile, uh, and um, and fleeting, and it's and it's worth appreciating because of how fragile and fleeting it is. Um, I think that's that's where I typically tend to anchor my humility it is not to say I, I would never offer Canada as Canadian experience as a as a lessons learned or a case study uh, for uh, any country really anywhere because it's I don't know how much of it is applicable what is applicable is um, the current uh, institutions and you know you, you could say listen we have come up with some models of doing things that work for us here's why it we think it works for us, and you know, if you think that there's aspects of it that are uh, are applicable to your uh, your predicament, your circumstance, you should you should you should really um, steal as much as you want to steal from our model. Like we we have no problem sharing, we have no problem supporting, we have no problem offering uh, our insights. I can see all of that, Russell, but I think what I find Canada does a lot of, and Canadians in particular, when I'm in political circles, they do a lot of, is to go that one step further and say, we have made mistakes, we fixed them, you know, let us help you fix your mistakes. <laughs> come on, come on. No, I, I, well, I don't think we don't, but, but that, that's, that's, Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I, I remember Afghanistan, right? Where, right. you know, under, uh, you know, Stephen Harper, you know, not my favorite man in the world, but, you know, what we did, right? So it was actually, it was a bit, a bit under Paul Martin, a bit, both these, both these men are my favorite men anyways. Well, both, okay, both under, under Paul Martin and both under, under Stephen Harper, we ended up having this, movement uh within afghanistan we said here's what we've learned what do you think you can get out of it and until the americans tapped our fingers and said or wrapped our fingers i should say and said we were we we were being a good example um the the afghan government was willing to sort of take that as as the example as as as, yeah, as, yeah. A, as a model and, and it's it, not I think a perfect said, model yeah i think you're right in within certain circumstances we offer something better than counterparts who are in the same space so i think in afghanistan we were offering a far more credible and um, um honest engagement with the local population because we come with a different set of experiences our military is different our approach to military engagement is different so I think we, I think those in, it, there was implicit value in something we were doing, 
relative to what the American uh, military establishment is doing. And if they were smart, they would be leveraging us to do more of what we were doing because it was effective. But clearly, but but aren't you just making, aren't you just making that 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 sort of argument that, you know. We, we don't know what the secret sauce is, but we have some of it. So why don't we share it? And I think- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with that, Russell. I actually think there's, there's, there's lots of little bits of secret sauce that we have. We don't know why we have it, but we've landed on a few gems and we should share those gems because, because I think that's, um, that could be part, that, that's something to be proud of is to be a generous population that is both humble and generous, right? Generous with what we have so we can actually help the world um, um, progress and whatever way we a, a population of 30 million can't right because we're not we're not capable of doing everything that a global superpower could do but we're capable of doing many things that um, um, significant middle powers can do right so we should we should do everything we can within that context i'm not i'm totally on board with that so hold um, on a sec hold on a sec are, are we saying that we can actually land this plane in less than two hours we can we can i think where the, <laughs> where the common ground i think between you and i is that if we were, if we were to recap sort of um, what you said at the beginning and where we are now, I think the common ground we have is there is a lot um, about the past of this country that is um, that can make you sink in your seat, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. What we're saying is that that we we should not shy away from that past. We should uh, uh, face it head on. Um, and 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 I'm hearing you say uh, we have another story to tell. So we have a we have a story of exceptionalism that is that is flawed and and incomplete. We have a story of of uh, of oppression uh, that is painful, uh, but also incomplete, because there's a third story which is which which talks about maybe the redemption arc of Canada, where uh, we are able to generation after generation try to really face our past and try to build uh, something that reflects the, the lessons that we should take from it and, and kind of redress the horrors of the past. I can see that. Actually, that's a, that's a really, really powerful way of shaping a, pers- a, a national conversation that's inward looking, right? And, and th- that to me, I think is, a, is the right way to shape a, a nationalism, uh, a patriotism. But I think that third space still needs to be anchored in a recognition that we don't still quite know how we got to this, let's call it good place. And we still not sure how we can get to a better place. Like let's think about our indigenous um, brethren in this country. We're still struggling to figure out what's, what truly is the way to get um, that population within this country to be fully um, 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 actualized within our polity, right? Like we don't, we have ideas, but, but ideas are just ideas. They're they're dime a dozen. We we haven't gotten there yet. We have we don't have that that story to say that we we were we were where we were and we have been able to actually make progress. I, I think that's um, that's still yet to come. So because there are still many things yet to come, I tend to be more. And this is where maybe you and I differ. Is I tend to tr- be more anchored in humility than anything else with, with a lot of this stuff. Because I think once you're anchored in humility, then you can talk about your personal pride and country much more uh, full-throatedly. Because I have a lot of personal pride in what this this country and the, and the institutions and the people who live in this country have offered me and my family, right? And I want to be able to talk about it in a full-throated way because it's an individual experience. There's nothing that really 
is inauthentic about my individual experience. But I want to caveat that. I want to anchor that within a humility that this is just my experience. And I'm sure there, and I know that there are experiences that completely counter this, that still exist in the society that I, that I share a home with others in, right? And I, I do have a location to help redress some of that over my lifetime here. And I think that's, that's, that's fair. And I think that's, that's, so, so in, in talking about Canada Day, we're talking about it as a, as a, as a day to mark, to, to mark where we are, both good and bad. And I think it, if we, we I, I think holidays are always bad when we use the word celebrate. And I say this, I'm thinking about Remembrance Day as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think celebrate is a tricky word, isn't it? It doesn't seem yeah. to be the moment. So, so maybe, maybe the word is that we honor Canada Day humbly and that we recognize and participate in that day fully and that participation is is both somber and and happy it is both more remote uh, 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 being rem uh, more remorseful but also optimistic yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you're hitting on something that maybe really reflects um, what needs to come next. Because I think this year is going to be potentially a year, year where people are more interested in not engaging with the day because of very very specific and clear reasons. Um, but I think I think it's not just about this year. I think it's about the multi-year, multi-generational project uh, that potentially starts this year. Because I don't think this, the momentum is lost. I think we, we need people to now invest in some version of Canada Day that feels authentic and feels um, healthy uh, for a large large cross section of the polity to participate in. Right, and, one and where think, everyone can see some some of themselves in there, and they can say, well, "This version of Canada Day gives space for me to participate," um, uh, and 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 feel. I, I don't like the word inclusive. Or included, but but feel like I can have a conversation with my family on this day that is very different from maybe the conversation somebody else is having. But we're all having conversations, and that's what it's binding is. We're, you know, I like the idea of honoring or remembering or reflecting. Right, it's a day of reflection. We're really reflecting on what we have to appreciate and what we have um, to rem not forget, and what we are hoping to build for the next generation, right? Okay. Then I think, how do you, how do you, how do you like that? Is that, is that a, is that a way of synthesizing I, I, the point? I, I think I, I will give you the last word because, you know, we've made a couple of mistakes along the way and, uh, but, but, <laughs> I, think we, but, I think we've but, done okay. But we, ma we, we made it, ha we made it happen. We, we have to have those conversations. So with that being said, I, I think, uh, I think that's it. Fantastic, Russ. This is uh, this has been a great uh, delight of a conversation. I think uh, we've picked up on themes in the first two episodes and really brought it to bear in this conversation. I'm hoping we can do more of this, and maybe as we move forward with this podcast with our listeners, if you have any thoughts and suggestions, please share them with us. Uh, and thank you for hanging in there for an hour and twenty. And looking forward to another conversation next week, Russ, on a on a different topic. Thanks, man.
Speak to you later. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Same with you. Bye.